I actually think the addiction to negativity and to that inner critic, it's a desire for safety, for almost like immunity or invulnerability from external forces. Because I just found that if you keep criticizing yourself, if you keep being mean to yourself, then all the other external hurts, they don't pierce you as much. Hello and welcome to this Sunday's big interview for the Irishman abroad with Ivan Lynch, the author of a searing new memoir entitled The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, The Tragedy and the Glory of Growing Up. Now, this is an unbelievable read and a tough one uh, at the best of times. She is, of course, the actress and activist and podcaster who talks about the bravery that it takes to embrace ourselves and the things we want and how to navigate this constant battle in our minds between perfection and creative freedom. It's incredibly written. It's an amazing book. And Havana has, of course, been viewed for a long time as a role model for people recovering from anorexia. And the story of her casting as Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter films kind of grew to this mythic level. Uh, It became this fairy tale of how it saved her. Of course, there was a lot more to it than that. And this idea of recovery being a linear thing is something that she wanted to address. And as I discuss here, it's an opportunity for her to set the story straight and take back ownership of what is her life and how complicated it can be and continues to be. I really adored it and I think there's an awful lot in this conversation in the book for parents of kids going through a tough time. Jigsaw.ie are my chosen charity partner for that very reason. They're an incredible youth mental health charity in Ireland who work throughout communities to help equip young people with the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life. Now, I've had them on the show. We've done episodes specifically about Jigsaw just to explain what they do. But the best way for you to find out what Jigsaw is all about is to go to jigsaw.ie. And if you can spare it, kick in a couple of pounds over there. This is, of course, the iTunes version of our episode, the smaller version. The supporters of our show who we're really grateful for are the reason this show is still going. The way to support Irishman Abroad is to head to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. And that way you get the full extended conversation, an extra 30 minutes with Ivana here. And usually every Sunday, an extra 30 to 40 minutes in every interview. And of course, our full episodes with Sonia Sullivan every Tuesday and Marion McKeown on the Friday. It costs the price of a pint or whatever you can afford. But it is the reason we're still going and the way that we're continuing to make this podcast better. It's patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they're going to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and learn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never had- 
as a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Vanna Lynch, it's fantastic to have you back on Irishman Abroad. It feels like an eternity since we last spoke. And I'd imagine that there's a version of you before you wrote this book and a version after. Because as you said, in so much of the promotion of it, it was as much about setting the record straight as anything else. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I feel very liberated from it. But by it, I suppose, I feel that it's not that I'm different, but it's that I can relax into being my true self, my more authentic self. I think I felt like, you know, a lot of the stuff I wrote about in the book, a lot of it was stuff I was really ashamed of. And I've tried to speak about it, but you can never give a full portrait in the media. Yeah. And um, yeah, it just felt that oh, people are going to not like me if they know this side of me. But that's just impossible to live with, you know? And mm. I want to be truthful. I don't want to be feeling like I'm censoring myself. So that's kind of why I write the book, wrote the book, to be to, to admit, to own my, who I am to myself, to admit this is who I am, and to be more open and honest with, with other people, with the public, that kind of way. And, and yeah, I've just found that since it's been out, it's like, okay, cool, yeah, some people... Well, I've mostly just had a, a great response from people. I'm sure there are people who don't resonate with it, but yeah, it was it, that, it, it, answering your question. I, I haven't, away, I haven't it, heard a single person say that, though. I mean, the reviews and everything on, you know, everyone goes to Goodreads and these websites yeah. and, you know, it resonates regardless of what your background is. And, you know, even some of what you just said now is inspiring because you know you're 30 years old and you know your your mind and yourself so clearly that is something that a lot of people are really striving towards how much of coming out and writing this was down to spending a long time holding down the image of luna lovegood and trying to not ruin it for everyone else and fearing that, oh, if I do tell people this stuff that, as you say, people might not like about me, that you potentially destroy something precious to someone else mm -hmm. that isn't of your making. Well, I think I would more run the risk of doing that if I tried to bottle up, you know, the truth and who I am. I she you know, I'm very different from her in many ways, but at her essence, she has self-acceptance, acceptance of all her her weirdness, her oddness, her eccentricities, and that really liberates people, and, and, and that's what lets them accept themselves. So uh, I kind of just felt, like, exhausted by trying to live up to people's expectations, sure. trying to keep it sweet, trying to keep it always positive. And I just I, – I have noticed that whenever I bottle up my feelings – I, I pay for it. There's a cost. I always end up emotionally exhausted, burnt out, or I snap at somebody. And that is a much worse reaction than actually just being real and honest and maybe disappoint people with my with my truth. But yeah, I, I, I don't want to feel like I'm trapped by this character and I don't want to feel like I'm repressing things. So 
in a sense, it was like a lot of throughout my life. She that that character has been a, a um, like a guide map for me. Of I want to give people that permission to accept themselves too. And mm. the the truth of me isn't that character. So if I'm to if I'm to live that, I have to own yeah these things that are sort of dark and maybe shameful. So um, it, it most that that really wasn't much of a factor in writing okay. the book. But it, it I think it's been years of feeling like. Oh, this frustration of not communicating who I am to people and holding back, and 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 it just came from a sense of tiredness, exhaust, exhaustion about um, having to pretend. And I was just like, I just want this out there. And now that it's you know that the book is out there, it doesn't even feel like I, I don't really want to keep talking about it forever. I'm like, great, it, it it's freed me, and now I can move on to yeah, do other things. So. Yeah. I hope that's answered answer that. I think so. And, you know, uh, I heard you reference a few times how the narrative and when we talk about setting it straight, the narrative of <laughs> that Irish people tend towards is you went through that terrible thing and sure now <laughs> you're grand. Right. And, and, then, <laughs> and they, they desperately want you to say and but you're your grand now. And you go, yeah, if that's what makes you happy, if that's what you need. But this book is so much focused on. Can we accept that recovery isn't just the destination and there's Mm. so much more underneath that we can talk about happily and healthily to help other people recover, right? Yeah, definitely. Like what you say about it not being an endpoint, and that it looks different to, for for everyone else. You know what? Because people have asked me that over the years. When did you recover? Are you recovered? What's your relationship now? And it, it's like, I, I'm. There was never a moment. There was never this light switch moment. It was just a very messy, non-linear path to figuring out how to cope in a better way mm. and choosing more positive, healthier influences and outlets and all that kind of thing but but yeah it, like and that that's why the the very last chapter ends in a place where there was a conversation my editor being like is this a bit too honest you know mm. saying that sometimes you miss your eating disorder sometimes you regret recovery and go damn it was safer back then it was so easy when i just had this one dysfunctional thing that consumed my mind and my heart and that's all I had to think about every day and I I don't have those moments so often now but I still do some days and I think for a long time I felt like such a fraud and so guilty for talking about this and talking about recovery going along with that narrative and also going oh but I, I still have this quite evil voice inside me that um, ruins certain days and that other people would be horrified to hear about but yeah it's something you manage and you get better at it with experience and age. And as I say, with just choosing better people and influences, you get better at managing it. But I, I, I truly don't think it goes away. I think it needs to be consciously managed. Well, one of the things I really want to talk about later on, and you know, we've a lot to cover here. I mean, there's quite a bit to get through. As you say, it is quite hard to do these chats when the book is so dense and so vast and the story is so complex to then be, you know, on the radio and people going, tell us about the book. 
And <laughs> now we'll go to ads. But we do have the time and space to talk about. And I really do want to talk about this thing that you mentioned there of the anorexia being kind of the lodger who gets evicted. But essentially, the lodger lives in a darkness that uh, remains even after it's been vacated. And I think quite a lot of Irish people and nationality might not even come into this, but I certainly can speak from the perspective as an Irish person of having that negative inner voice, this critical voice. And I've probably used it to good ends to produce creative stuff and probably tried to make friends with it at times and seen it as a positive. But over the last few episodes of Irishman Abroad with people like Damien Dempsey and Steve Garrigan, they've talk, spoken about that horrid inner critic leaving them crippled with shyness and social anxiety. And I asked them the same question that I'm about to ask you, and that is, where does it come from? Like when does that critical voice begin, in your opinion? Because certainly I hold the belief that no child is born talking to themselves mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I And that's why I kind of had to paint this picture in the start of the book of being a child and, and just living off of creativity because mm. that, you can't be creative with that voice ruling your life. It's just too debilitating. I, for me, I don't know. I think it came in around the age of 10 or 11 when you, when I sort of gained awareness that, oh, I, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to have to figure it out. And that's all on me. That's my responsibility. And also just like, being a very sensitive person, overly sensitive, really, that um, I started to notice, yeah, that people had opinions and criticisms, and it, you could get hurt if you if you weren't if you weren't aware of those things. You could be really hurt by them, and that's I actually think the addiction to negativity and to that inner critic, it, it's a, a desire for safety. Um, for almost like immunity or Ill invulnerability from external forces because I just found that if you keep criticizing yourself if you keep being mean to yourself then all the other external hurts don't they don't pierce you as much mm. and it's like you're you're braced for those for the negativity for that impact so you're cool whereas like when you're a child, when you're, I mean, we all have that, don't we? we? We all have, we find our most traumatic memories are often such small moments from childhood where other people won't notice them. But like, I remember one, I don't think it's in the book at all, but I remember just waiting outside school as like a five-year-old and I was sitting in a doorway waiting for my mom to come collect me. And, you know, it's just that pure innocence of wanting to kind of stay warm and uh, this looks like a nice little place to perch. And I just remember this teacher coming and literally kicking me, kicking me out, going, you're not allowed here. How, how, who said you could be? And like kicking my backside out the door and the pure shame and hurt and sadness. And like, yeah, the hurt like that. When you are an innocent little soul who doesn't have a negative voice saying, don't do this. You're terrible for this. When it comes from somebody else, 
it's shocking and horrifying and it just knocks you off your center. And I remember crying so much that day and my mom coming to get me and being like, why are you crying? What happened? I was so ashamed. It's weird. I've never told this story. I was so ashamed that I just, um, I, I couldn't say it. And I think it's moments like that as a child, that's when you go, it's much safer if I can get there first, if I can mm. be the one who says all the mean things and says all the criticisms. So then nobody will be able to hurt me. I, I've done the worst things to myself. Yeah, you beat the, you beat them to the punch, essentially. Exactly. And yes. you battle harden yourself through self-criticism. That yeah. This is and that whatever you say to me is nothing compared to the yeah. stuff that I'm saying to myself. That's a really interesting one, though, about the five year old you getting booted off that step, because <laughs> <laughs> and I, first of all, I think, what kind of an arsehole does that to a little blondy five year old child? <laughs> like nestling in from the cold in some kind oh, of Dickensian yeah. image that you've created there. <laughs> It's astonishing, but it is the kind of thing that would happen back then. Yeah. And particularly listeners yeah. who grew up in the 80s will know that, uh, you know, getting a slap off a, a strange parent, not even your own parent, was mm -hmm. a possibility. But I do know what you yeah. mean about suddenly realising that you can be regarded as a fool or an idiot or, a, you know, uh -huh. the cause of something through your own stupidity yeah. and that like I certainly remember around five, six receiving a scolding from a teacher for something that I was just innocent over, like just I, I was told to not lean against the wall and my vocabulary was so mm. small that I didn't know what leaning was. <laughs> it's mm. so funny when you look back on it. But I remember Aww. it being screamed at me and just I don't ha have, you know, the experiences that you have with this. But it's just when you bring up this story of the young you and tracing back that internal voice, that these are formative moments. And I often wonder, how would you do it differently? I asked Steve Garrigan the same question about could you be reached? Do you think that if the DeLorean was available and this Ivana Lynch could Marty McFly herself back there, could it could what you eventually went through have been prevented? I don't that's a really hard question to answer. I don't, I don't think so. I think I was just the type of I'm just that's just something in my soul's journey I suppose I I, I believe in the soul you know and mm -hmm. I believe that there there was just something in me that needed to like actually th my therapist talks about this she always talks about yeah certain people who are very sensitive find life hard like she says they often come to a suicide point and I wouldn't I mean sorry that's a big word and I, I wouldn't describe my experience just like that but this this real deep inner question of why am I here what am I doing what's the point of life if I'm gonna die if I'm if there's whatever seven billion people in the world like I, I just I didn't see the point of life and 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 so I think it that that existential questioning would have come up in some way or another sure it it, it mightn't have just been an eating disorder I think that was one that was it was, it was sort of, I was primed for that in ways like it was it was available to me because 
I'd have people making comments about. I mean, I was, I was, I was like the small one in my family. I was small compared to my sisters. I'd had a lot of food allergies when I was young, so I, I started to kind of unconsciously see that if you are weird with food, you get attention, you that kind of thing. So I think it would have shown up in some way or another, uh, anyway. But maybe it could have been a different toxic outlet. Mm. But yeah, I don't know if it could be prevented. And I think about that sometimes, especially while writing this book, because the book is like a really a call for uh, pursuing creativity and abandoning perfectionism. And and sometimes I I do I think about those sort of the two years when I was very actively sustaining my eating disorder, and that was my way of life. Like I, I really just wiped out all creativity from my life. I wiped my personality was kind of gone for those two years, and I think living like that is very hard to come back from that and find that um, just wild abandon that you need for creativity. Mm. The the addiction to perfection does creep in all the time when in in creative pursuits because creativity feels so uh, like fluid and messy and like oh i just want to know where the boundaries are i want to know where the lines are so i can feel safe within them so yeah sometimes i think oh i wish i wish i had just created and 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 made art and and danced and 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 i hadn't lost i hadn't gained that fear of creativity Mm -hmm. but i have learned a lot through it and yeah as i say i think i'm the kind of person i would have had to go through something yeah i I mean the creativity side of it is you know, it's for me one of the most attractive parts of the story and the reason why it's it's so inspiring. But also as a parent, I, I am looking at it going like, is there a cautionary tale here? But your home is so loving. Your parents are clearly <laughs> so amazing that mm-hmm. like equally, though, their uh, parents have a tendency to place uh, situations such as the one that you found yourself in upon themselves and see it as, mm-hmm. oh, I failed as a parent. And you describe beautifully, you know, the tears that your mother sheds, your sisters telling you you're ruining your parents' lives and mm-hmm. the mire that you found yourself in terms of your headspace and, you know, escaping from the house to do more exercise, to lose mm-hmm. more weight. There has to be a part of you in the same way as you say you wrote this book thinking of the 11 year old you. Was there a part Mm. of you that was thinking of the parents that might pick up this book and how they might view it as a a way to get inside the mind of this unreachable child that they might have? Oh, yeah, 100 percent. That was a big part of writing the book. And there I really want those kind of people to find well for the book to find them because um, yeah, my, my, I struggled with that, for one thing, that feeling of, well, I don't have any triggering event that caused this. I don't have any excuse for having a big problem. Like, um, I think people can reduce it down to oh, one big triggering event and, and that's your reason. And, and for me, it wasn't. It was deeper. As I say, it was more ex- as ex- ugh, existential. And I remember my my mom used to ask me at the time, what have we done? What did we not do? What did we not give mm. you? And as you can see from the book, they gave everything. They put everything into my recovery. They, they, you know, put everything into helping me develop as a person before that. And I didn't know how to answer that. I mean, I kind of, you try and tell her, I, you try, I tried to tell her as a, as, as a child, it's nothing to do with you. It's not you at all. It, it's not like, and that is mental illness. You can't, 
control it. it it can't you can't just go okay i'll eat a sandwich it's not about them so yeah that, uh, that i'm trying to give a portrait there to show to kind of get help people maybe similar to my parents to give themselves a break to cut themselves some slack and just but also to know how to support the person better rather than beating themselves up and saying i'm a terrible parent how has this happened you have to stop being the present with the person and help them find ways to support and and that's also in the book things that are helpful to say things that actually exacerbate the problem i wanted to to show ways in which my parents did amazing but also show at points where yeah maybe my sister shouldn't have been making comments on my appearance and that who knew back then you know this Mm -hmm. was like the early 2000s nobody had the vocabulary around mental health and that awareness so it's kind of showing what went well what didn't i i would say though like for kind of to address your question your queries like as a parent what can you do different to support people going through this your your children or to avoid it maybe work on your own shit like you really only lead by example not by telling people and you know if there's anything I, i didn't pick up an eating disorder from my mother or from my sisters but i did pick up her inferiority complex and that that's in the book too and um this is not a criticism of her because she's human and she's a wonderful mother and such a lovely person and she's she's had she has her own ancestral trauma to deal with but i think that's it you have to try and if you want to be a good example to your kids you have to heal your ancestral trauma my mom did struggle with things like she'd always criticize her appearance looking in the mirror she'd always doubt herself she mm. she she knocked herself too much and because i was a part of her and because i loved her and thought she was a perfect human being i took that on as well if she is inherently flawed i must be too there just must be something kind of wrong and messed up about us and and that was the root of of, of what happened and wow. i think a lot of us you know we pick that up from parents so that's the only thing Wow. Check your shit. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. Like, that's nearly more terrifying than yeah. actually going, you need to not say this. It's yeah. actually, it turns the mirror on the parent. And, you know, that's the hardest thing of all, because, mm. y- you know, whatever about not having the language to deal with it in the 90s, the mm-hmm. upbringing that our parents had was so far from the realm of understanding uh, of mental health. Uh, I've said it before in the podcast that the the number one Irish answer for mental health was the snap out of it method, mm-hmm. uh, which was literally to tell someone to stop it if they felt anything off the beaten path of normality. Oh, that's so true. And there's so much guilt around getting help, around taking time out even. Like, it's seen as so... Like the selfless thing to do is to look after others. And my parents would struggle with like they don't know really how to stop. And and like my mom would never go on a wellness retreat or anything. Mm. She she maybe sometimes goes to the spa, but she would have all these feelings I imagine about of guilt about taking time off to do that. And I'm always doing these things. I'm like, great, I'm going to do a retreat and therapy, all this. And she just wouldn't afford herself that time because she would probably see it as selfish. So, yeah, and I'm, I, I still have that myself where I'll go, oh, I, I, I like I just finished uh, working with a shaman. I was suddenly like, I got to go ahead and help people. And, and she was like, why? 
And I kind of said, well, because I've just been focusing on myself all these past months. And she was like, so you're going to go out and help people from a place of lack, from this feeling of inferiority and that I have to justify my place in the world. And it's like, oh, that's not a pure place to go out and try and do charity mm. to do altruism. Um, so, I, yeah, I, th- I think I just, I mean, yeah, I'm saying big things like, oh, work on your stuff. But it's very hard. We've all this stuff built up around it. And I, I suppose also just take the pressure off and accept you're human and you're doing your best. Yeah, no, when I talk to my wife about it, I mean, Tina comes up on this show so much because mm-hmm. she's just such an incredible uh, ambassador for Irish women to me. I just uh, marvel sometimes at you know what she has to deal with, with her own health issues and also just owning and trying to, as you say, cope with her own shit and sort it out and make moves towards changing for the better. And she often talks to me about the shame, the inherent shame of being an Irish woman. And again, I'm relaying this and I'd way prefer her to be here to articulate this, but I I have to try, lads. Um, She says that at the moment, and this is why your chapter on menstruation was so important, is that for years she would never speak about it, that the idea of talking about it. And it's only now that she's scratching her head and talking to myself and my son about how, why in the world mm. was this I, an idea that Irish women had that, oh, Jesus Christ, don't bring that up. You might embarrass yeah, yeah, the yeah. men in the room <laughs> who, who more often than not are totally at home with blood, but have been taught the shame through this kind of enactment of it being in hushed tones. How important was it for you to play your part in kind of shifting that view and that narrative? Well, it was, it was hugely important for my own healing to, to kind of, yeah, because I, I really felt that, that there's all this stuff about loving being a woman and being a strong, fierce, independent woman. And that's great. But it, it felt, to me, it felt very foreign and that kind of rhetoric felt very alienating because I was like, well, I secretly hate being a woman. Not that I want to be a man. This mm. isn't that conversation. But this sense of, oh, God, I don't want to bleed. I don't want to, I have to, you know, my body to be reminding me I'm fertile and to have all this just like responsibility forced on me or even. Sure, all the just the negative at. stuff connected to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it felt huge and it felt uh, too much. I just wanted to, you know, blend in and, and be left alone and uh, feel safe. Yeah, it just, women, womanhood felt very scary. Um, so, and it was just like, I'll never get to that place of, I love my body, every bit of it. I love being a woman until I be honest about how I actually feel. And you talk about it and then it, it's not kind of mired in shame and you find other people feel this way and you can then laugh about it and, and find a way through and find a way to just sort of make friends with your body, look at, like look after it and, um, well, start to undo your own internalized misogyny. Mm. That, that's what it was for me. Um, and I only really... It's weird. Oh, so th- this, it was actually in the book, but it got taken out because the book is so bloody long. <laughs> My relationship actually with the book Lolita, which I absolutely loved as a teen, 
and I, I, I read it over and over and I just, it was like my guilty pleasure. And I, and then I read it a few years ago and was really shocked by the misogyny. I was like, oh, it's not just fetishizing girlhood. It's, it also, the, the narrator really detests women. He just hates that they are opinionated and messy and, and bigger. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I and that they're so for, much more complicated than the simplicity, the simpler yes, version. Yeah, yes, complicated. And um, I, I think it was only until I started like speaking about that. Oh yeah, I'm a bit of a misogynist too, and I don't like it because it's it's toxic and it makes me hate myself. That, that that's when I started to really unravel it. Well, there you have it, the first half of my conversation with Ivana Lynch. Now, we get into a lot more, including the Harry Potter reunion in the second half of the show. And Ivana really has an interesting take on what it was like to meet up with the cast again. But I do want to reiterate, you need to go and get this book. It's called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, The Tragedy and the Glory of Growing Up. And I ask her, actually, having read it, if she has any plans to write fiction, because this thing is written so beautifully that it's obvious that that's where she should go next so getting into that with her is great fun in the second half of the show as well as lots more detail on what she's been through and what she's seen in terms of how mental health is dealt with with young people who just aren't being believed in a lot of cases i really recommend you pop over this week never been a better time to support the show patreon.com forward slash irish man abroad my thanks to brian Connolly on sound and tina and mikey for making it all possible and of course to ivana lynch come on over hear the rest of it at patreon.com forward slash irish man abroad